How you doing today, Brian? Hey, it's been a good day. I, uh, you know, I started off this morning with uh, a meditation session, and uh, that's that tends to be how I, I usually frame myself before I, I get into work. Uh, and so uh, it was especially fortuitous to be joined by a guest today with Mike Lee talking about his own mindfulness practice and uh, as a de- daily meditator, how that's contributed a lot to uh, his own leadership insights and uh, as well as the, the business practices that he's engaged in. You know, I really like this. It's definitely a different guest than, than we've had in the past. Um, you know, it's it's more along the line of the, the mindfulness, self-awareness. Um, some of these things that, you know, you and I always say they're essential skills. They're not soft skills. It's just things leaders need to know. Um, so, so our thought po- process behind it is, you know, we're, tr- we're trying to expose our audience to, to a more diverse background, right? <laughs> For sure. And all of these things factor into what you more commonly might hear in the mainstream referred to under the umbrella of emotional intelligence, um, the self-awareness, mm-hmm. you know, those, those things don't just uh, show up. If, if it's something that uh, uh, is in the area of skills that you need some development, uh, some of the mindfulness practices that we heard about today uh, are really, you know, key to helping to hone those skills. And I particularly like how Mike got into some of the physiology of what happens to the mm-hmm. brain as meditation becomes more of a routine practice. And, you know, he's, he's worked with some, some real people who uh, are out there putting these uh, practices to work. You know, Steph Curry, uh, for anyone who's an NBA fan, is, uh, is a name that is well known. Uh, so, um, and, you know, it's, uh, it's not just basketball that uh, is uh, sort of the central orientation for what Mike Lee's doing, but it's, he's got a long history in it. And uh, being able to bring those techniques to athletes who have mastered their game, uh, it's exciting. And it's, it's a fun uh, sort of alternate path for us to have explored uh, on lead.exe. Thanks for joining us for another edition of lead.exe. I'm Brian Comerford in Denver, Colorado. And I'm Nick Lozano in Washington, D.C. And today we're joined by special guest Mike Lee, uh, who comes to us from MindShift Labs, uh, as well as being the author of uh, a book called Untrain and the founder of Thrive, a basketball training company that creates game-changing experiences that cross over from the court to life. So very excited to uh, have a conversation with you today, Mike. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited to be here. All right. Well, you know, it's not very often that we've got someone who is fusing uh, basketball and leadership. But, uh, um, you know, as with a lot of uh, athletics, um, leadership tends to be one of those key components uh, to success. So uh, in the process of giving us a little bit about your own background, I know I'm curious to hear more about uh, what what led you down the basketball leadership path. Yeah, uh, really this started with a friend of mine. We are in college. After our, my sophomore year, we decided we wanted to just run a basketball camp in our hometown of about, at that time, like 12,000 people. Just for fun, we wanted to do it and just provide the kids with an experience in town that they couldn't get unless they were going to travel to Milwaukee, to Minneapolis. And even if you went that far, like we kind of 
created something a little different. And we set up this camp. Uh, we did things different. We, we had some unbelievable high school coaches in the area that ran a lot of the skill development. But we also, one of the things that really separated it, especially in the beginning, was A, the intensity of it was definitely different. It was not a typical summer camp for kids. This was high level, elite level training applicable to a sixth grader, seventh grader, eighth grader. And the other thing that we did different was we hired a DJ to DJ first <laughs> camp. So instead of kids just going through drills, they're going through drills with their, with high energy music, filling the gym and the ability to go over and request songs from the DJ during camp. So that was something that we did that was definitely different. I don't know if anybody's ever done that before. Yeah, the first year we had 100 kids. The second year we decided to do it again, we had 200. And the third year we had over 300 kids in a town of 12,000 people in the middle of nowhere in Wisconsin. <laughs> so I kind of knew that this was something that could be bigger, that I could grow, that would be an avenue to reach a lot of kids. And instead of pursuing a path of coaching college basketball, I decided to go down this route of running basketball camps and working out kids individually and in groups that wanted to play at a higher level. So that was kind of how it started. And that just grew into more camps, more training. I've spent time in the gym with at least a couple dozen NBA basketball players uh, working on their individual skills. I was assistant director for Steph Curry's Skills Academy that he ran a couple of years out of out of college. I've worked out Joel Embiid when he was before anybody knew who he was. He was pretty much a just a kid from Africa that was a tall kid that was kind of an athlete that was at a prep school in Florida, and he ended up living in Milwaukee for a couple months. Uh, during the summer of 2012, I believe, and spent a couple months working with him. And, you know, we've also done events pretty much, honestly, all across the world. I, I've done training camps for pro teams in Indonesia, run events in 30 different states across, across the United States. And we opened a, uh, a training academy in Barcelona last uh, in 2018. So, kind of been able to do a lot of stuff, had a ton of amazing experiences, met some amazing people, worked with you know, some the best basketball players on the planet. And it's been a, it's been a journey. And then fusing the, the basketball with the leadership aspect, uh, that's, that's a little bit longer of a story, but uh, basically what happened was I picked up a meditation practice to help me combat the heroin-like withdrawal symptoms of this antidepressant medication that I was on. And it was the only way that I could get off it because I, I was just in a state of chronic emotional instability. I had been on this medication for 14 years. I decided to get off of it getting off of it, like I said, was like getting off of heroin. And I would go from laughing to crying to anxiety to depression, all within a couple hours. 
And the only way that I got through this period in my life was I did a massive amount of yoga and I committed to a daily meditation practice. So what happened was after a couple months, I realized that all the performance and leadership principles that I had been using to get players to perform at their highest level beyond the basketball skills and using with the people that I worked with in our little basketball training business, not just me, we've had uh, at different times, you know, five to six different employees on a consistent basis that all these principles were, were amplified because when you have a meditation practice, there are areas of your brain that change. There's an area in the front called your neo, neocortex, which is responsible for things like your executive function, your self-awareness. That area actually grows and gets bigger in our brain. Uh, there's an area in the back called the amygdala, which is responsible for our fight, flight, or freeze response. And that area actually shrinks when we have a meditation practice, making us less reactive to stress. And then when we are less reactive to stress or chaos or distractions in our environment, we are fully in the present moment focused on what we actually can can control in that situation, whatever the task is. If you're an artist, an athlete, a CEO, everything is about how do I access the present moment? Because that's the only place that we can do our greatest work. We can show up as the best version of ourselves for those that, that we're leading. Mm -hmm. So I realized that instead of building basketball players, I wanted to build people. And <laughs> That really was the, the foundation of how MindShift Labs started. And it's kind of a twofold mission. It's kind of part one is to help alleviate emotional suffering for as many people as I can for the rest of my life. And the flip side of that is when you can start to do that, you help people along their path of pursuing their human potential. And that's, that's really the exciting part to me is helping people unlock what's inside of them so that they can a have a super fulfilling life going after things that they love and dream about. But then just that, just the process of alone of that growth and that pursuit is unbelievably enjoyable and fulfilling in and of itself. And that applies to Anybody who's in a leadership position, anybody who wants to perform at their highest level, whatever industry they're in, uh, these concepts all apply. And it's been super rewarding and fulfilling to go down that journey, hear the impact that it's having on people and being able to share these with people across the country. Wow. Well, that's quite an introduction. Uh, and I think a lot of what you've said resonates with, uh, with both Nick and I, I know that Nick's a martial artist and I myself, am a daily meditator. So there's, uh, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of synergy, uh, in our own personal beliefs with, uh, are you, in, are you in Boulder or Denver? I, when I, when I moved to Colorado, <laughs> I, I lived in Boulder. I, I came yeah. here, I came here to go to Boulder originally, gotcha. uh, and was in Boulder for 10 years, uh, before, uh, making the move to Denver. Gotcha. Gotcha. Just figured that that's a place that's probably uh, got a lot more people who are meditating than in Denver. You know, I think <laughs> probably at the time that I came, that was probably true, but I don't know yeah, that yeah. it's necessarily true now. I, I think gotcha. Denver is probably more analogous to, you know, places like uh, Austin, Texas or San Francisco right, right. at this mm -hmm. point. Yeah, yeah. 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 Awesome. So yeah, that's, that's the, the high level journey. 
Nice. <laughs> I like that you bring self-awareness about, because that's, that's how I actually wound up finding you on LinkedIn, was uh, yeah. you had a comment about, um, I, I believe it was AI, um, you know, kind yeah. of diminishing some of the, this technology and, you know, people needing to write lines of code because technology was just going to advance and, you know, those hard skills. And then, you know, people always call them soft skills, but I just call them like essential skills. These right. soft skills like emotional intelligence um, and everything are really important. And I, I really liked the message that, that you had behind that. Um, so what's your thought process behind the self-awareness? Well, the key to me is awareness is everything. Mm -hmm. If we don't have, if you want to perform at a higher level in any, any arena, awareness is everything. If you, if you don't have awareness, you can't make changes and without changes, you can't improve. So mm -hmm. everything starts with creating that, that self-awareness. What I found is the more self-aware I've become, the more socially aware I've become, meaning I'm able to be more present with somebody else, hold space for them, and also be able to pick up on the pick up on their body language, pick up on their tone of voice, pick up on their uh, their eye contact, and different things like that to read how they are, what kind of emotional state that they are in, so you're able to connect with them in a way that makes them feel safe. I like that. And, and, you know, you're working with, with, you know, leaders of different varieties and emotional intelligence and meditation and everything is like the, this squishy, soft, feely, <laughs> um, you know, terms. So like, how, how do you slowly bring them into, you know, like something like meditation? Because people always, you know, think of that as like some, you have to be some kind of monk who sits in a corner and says, um, um, yeah. like, how are you bringing introducing that, I guess, to people who might be, um, you know, not quite as open to it initially. Yeah. 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 The first thing is it's not for everybody. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's not, uh, it, it's a practice that takes a ton of discipline. It's super simple, but that does not mean in any way, <laughs> shape or form that it's easy. And, but going back to your question, I think the, the, the way that I like to introduce it to people is a couple ways. Number one, share a story about somebody that they can relate to or aspire to that has used this practice to elevate their career or their life. And there is a massive amount of people that we're becoming more aware of that in recent years, I mean, in the last three to five years, but have been using these practices for the past 15, 20 years. Uh, I talk when I speak and run workshops, I tell stories about Kobe Bryant and how this impacted how he showed up on the court. And you know, Kobe was a daily meditator for the last 20 years of his career. I think he started meditating a couple years into his NBA career. And then, you know, until he uh, transitioned a few weeks ago, but he, he was a daily meditation practicer or practitioner. And this is what allowed him to play with so much poise to play with so much calm in the middle of chaos, because he always was aware that he had developed the skill to continually come back to his breath, no matter what was going on in the arena. And I just, I think that gave him a, a huge advantage. You look at the way he played, 
nobody ever sped him up. Nobody dictated what he did out on the court because he had always had that awareness to continually come back to his breath because of his mindfulness practice. And so he was able to play alert, but he was also able to play relaxed at the same time. He was relaxed enough that nobody sped him up and forced him to do things that he didn't want to do, but he was also alert enough that if he saw a gap or he saw an option, he was able to take advantage of it because he was fully alert in the moment without being sped up. And I think that translates to so many areas of life. I mean, if you're in a, a high pressure, fast paced work environment, that skill is invaluable. That is going to dramatically increase your ability to deliver results. Um, if you're, even if you are a, you know, you're a, you're a parent and dealing with your kids on a consistent basis that are making demands of you every day, or even if it's your dog, like there's (laughs) this, this can show up in so many ways and have an impact on your life. So it's telling stories about their other people that have used these practices for, for their career to level up their performance. Uh, you know, and it's just, again, there's so many people that are using these practices that are kind of, it's kind of under the radar. Like most people don't know that Michael Jordan, and this is not a meditation practice, but just something that is something that you're doing an exercise, a strategy to train your mind. Michael Jordan hired a hypnotist to, to strengthen his beliefs around his competence. Nobody knows that. And that was, that was years ago that he found value and knew the importance of training your mind to, because that's where everything starts. Everything starts with what we think about. And so he knew that. The other thing is to give them a direct experience. Mindfulness meditate or meditation practice is not something that you can explain to somebody. You can to a certain extent, but it's something that they have to have a direct experience with to actually fully understand it. It's like you can read a book about how to swim, but you really don't know what it's like <laughs> if you jump in the water. Right. Yeah, so that's the way I, I like to like to introduce it to people is, is give them a story, give them a direct experience, and then let them decide for themselves whether or not it's something that they think will, will have an impact on their life. I mean, a lot of people start out and they are what, what we call crisis meditators. They only meditate when things are going crazy in their life. And that's how, honestly, that's how I started. Mm -hmm. I was insanely stressed out from building this nonprofit for inner city at-risk kids in Milwaukee, trying to keep my basketball business going in an unhealthy relationship. And I just, working out wasn't cutting it anymore. I needed something different to train my mind. And so I, I would stop and I'd go out on my, uh, go out on my balcony in Milwaukee and I would and sit there 20, 30 minutes with an app called Headspace. And this was oh, yeah. almost, mm-hmm. almost six years ago. And, but that's how I started. I was definitely 100% a crisis meditator. So <laughs> I, I think, I think it's something that, that people need to, if it's, 
with the awareness we have today around the practices, I really think that it's something that if it's going to be beneficial for you in your life, you're going to find it and it's going to come to you and it's going to be uh, what you need or it's not going to be what you need. But um, I definitely think there are a lot of myths and challenges around it that deter people from even starting in the first place, or they try it a couple times and they have this misconception about what the experience is supposed to be. So they stop, stop the practice. Well, I think that's a, a, you know, all of those are, are, I think, key points. The, the crisis meditator uh, comment, you know, it, it tends to be an entry point for a lot of people into more healthful practices, right? Right. Uh, I, I, I did some work uh, with uh, a health and wellness group who okay. was going into organizations, you know, doing typical things like health screenings, right? Making sure that on an annual basis, you're, uh, you're getting your blood pressure checked and your BMI and, you know, all of these different things. Uh, but I worked with that group and I actually taught them uh, meditation practice. And so this became one of those freebies that got introduced with some of the organizations where it's, uh, we're just going to do 10 minutes of this. And, you know, we'll, we'll walk through a couple different approaches and how it's done, including a, a walking meditation, a sitting meditation, right? And, and really just being able to learn, number one, it's called practice for a reason, um, because ultimately right. for, for people who are regular practitioners of meditation, you know that there's really never any mastery, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> there's, there's always room for improvement in whatever your practice is. Um, but being able to discipline the mind and get yourself to a place where you have greater control over the reactions where your mind tends to want to fire up the chatterbox again. Uh, and in particular, being kind to yourself as you're having that recognition. Oh, there it is. Thinking, thinking, right. Again, right. Let's, let's dismiss that and go back to the breath. Um, those I think are, are key components that uh, can help start driving this more towards like what you're saying. How do you bake it into uh, introducing it as something that, rather than ever becoming a crisis meditator, it's something that we're introducing into Western society in particular as something with all these great benefits uh, so that you don't have to come to it when you're in a point of crisis. Right, right. I agree. So, you know, I would say another uh, uh, anecdote that I can share, uh, one that was meaningful to me and kind of connected with part of the story you were sharing, uh, as you were referring to, you know, what are some of those uh, personal stories that, you know, can help sort of reframe the perspective of who you're trying to, to introduce to this. Um, I worked with a president of a software company who I was surprised to discover was a Buddhist. And, uh, <laughs> you know, originally I'd I, you know, been there working as a contractor and I, I asked him, you know, this is, I mean, you're working with some pretty archaic code, you know, I was, I was coding at the time, but uh, I was kind of surprised with the code base. And I said, you know, how do you, how do you kind of manage, you know, navigating through all this stuff? Cause it looks, you know, like a, a much more cumbersome process than what I'm, what I'm used to working in. And he said, Zen archery. And I said, okay, wh I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. He said, he said no, every weekend uh, I spend about an hour each day 
uh, practicing Zen archery. And I had no idea what that meant. And so uh, on one of these weekends, he took me out to a place and, and showed me. And it was really about not only the breath control, yeah. Um, but being able to get yourself into a place where you were kind of like your, your basketball, you know, story with Kobe Bryant, maintaining that poise and grace, how do you maintain the tension that's required, uh, working with a bow and arrow and also maintain perfect poise and grace, con- concentration and breath control? hundred percent, hundred percent. There's, there's that balance there. And that's one of my yoga teachers when I first started said she talked about 70% effort or 80% effort. And this is, I guess, is jumping into basketball a little bit, but like so many coaches, and I'm guessing this is like this in other sports as well, but they preach so much game speed training all the time that what that translates to a lot of, a lot of players or kids is that you should go at a hundred percent full speed all the time with mm-hmm. full effort. And you can't play the game like that. And you can't play life like that. And I, I 100% agree. That's, that is almost, that's like finding the middle way, right? Mm-hmm. It's the, it's the, that 70% effort, 80% effort. Meditation is not, I think this is one of the myths about it is that, Oh, it's going to, take away my edge and it's going to make me soft and I'm not going to be as motivated. Kobe Bryant was the ultimate competitor, the ultimate competitor. And you can't say that, that this meditation softened him up from his competitive (laughs) edge in any way, shape or form. So I don't think, but I think finding that and Kobe is is a great example of that, I don't know exactly how you described it, but being able to hold that tension that is needed in the moment to perform with the the physical skill, but also have that softness of your breath and that awareness and being able to still be fully in the present moment. So yeah, I've never done that before, but I can imagine that's a, uh, a great practice. Well, when you come back to Colorado, I'll take you up to the Shambhala Mountain Center. There's a Zen archery range up there. <laughs> Sounds awesome. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, anyone who thinks that meditation will soften you up needs to sit with a straight back on a brick floor for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. That's true. <laughs> so I just had a question for you here. Uh, Mike, yeah. uh, getting back to your uh, kind of leadership uh, yes, I, I saw an article on your website. It's like the ten pillars of transformational leadership. Yes, and and one of the pillars that really interested me was vulnerability. Um, yep. uh, to me, that's always a, a key thing when you're a leader is you know being vulnerable, letting people know that that you make mistakes. Like I often when I have people new that are working with me, I often tell them about all the stuff that I've messed up. You know, like when I deleted a whole production database of users. <laughs> Um, so people can't log into a website, you know, tripping over, you know, a network cable and taking the whole office internet down for like a half an hour. <laughs> um, so, so anyone who works in technology who tells you that they haven't messed something up is lying to you. <laughs> um, yeah. But I was just curious what your thoughts on on vulnerability are. Well, I th- it's tough because I think we're it's becoming a buzzword in society and you know across 
all, you know, every industry, not every industry, but from just regular life to the corporate space, everything, it's becoming a buzzword. And what I see the challenge with it is, is that being vulnerable doesn't mean using other people as your therapist. To me, it's, yes, you want to be vulnerable, but only when it adds value. If you're vulnerable and just spewing your your problems out to somebody, that's not necessarily vulnerability. That's called going to therapy. You so it's when you can share maybe a mistake that you made or a a it's a mistake you made and there's a teaching point around that or a story where you made a mistake and there's something to be taught, something that is that can maybe prevent something else within your organization. Uh, that's, that's part of it. The other part of it is simply just asking for help when you need it and trusting that you're going to be supported. I think that's, that's the other aspect of it. Um, because that vulner- the other piece of it is that vulnerability is the first step to creating connection with somebody. And when you create that connection, you can build trust. And then when you have that trust, that's when you can challenge somebody to be at their best. Without that, that vulnerability is almost a gateway to the ability to influence somebody else in a positive way in a relationship when you're in a leadership position. It's um, vulnerability. Like I, like I said, I, I always use that to open up to people to let them know like, hey, I've made mistakes and I'm not expecting you to be perfect. Um, right you know, it's, it's okay to make mistakes. Cause I feel like sometimes failure that the in failure, that's where the growth is too. Um, so that's generally why, why I kind of do the, the fail fest, uh, portion of that. <laughs> right. Right. Mm-hmm. And to your point there, there's another piece of it that's super important and that, and that's to make people feel safe enough to make mistakes mm-hmm. in our world. Innovation and creativity are at a premium. We need, we need, things to advance with different with climate change and so many different things in our world that we need people to be innovative and we need people to create and we need people to solve problems. But if you're a leader and you're not making people feel safe enough to make mistakes, that progress is not going to be made. When people feel psychologically safe, you also then have the ability to raise their standards at the same time. And that those two balances, when somebody feels safe yet, they also know that great work is is needed from them. That's when they can have the freedom to try new things, to take risks, to make mistakes and learn from them, not feeling like they're going to be reprimanded for every little mistake that they make and even fear of, of losing their jobs. That freedom is what creates that sense of accountability and responsibility and when we have that sense of responsibility and accountability, we feel empowered to do our greatest work. And that starts with feeling safe. That's very, very well said. And it, it almost goes back to your point of trust, right? You're, you're slowly building building trust and authenticity in, in the people that you're leading. 100%. 100%. And vulnerability is a way to speed that up. Mm-hmm. I, I, I completely agree. And I, that's why I, I always tend to do it. <laughs> so Mike, tell us a little bit of how this factors into your book, Untrain. 
The vulnerability aspect or everything that we're speaking about? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we can start with vulnerability and broaden it from there. Yeah. I mean, the, the book really, there's a chapter about vulnerability in the book, but there's really the book is about kind of going back to what I, I talked about earlier when I picked up this meditation practice was that it's really about principles of leadership, principles of performance, and how a mindfulness practice can enhance these principles. Like we we have all these these skills that we know are beneficial to being a great leader, to being a high performer, to delivering world-class performance, like focus, like our self-awareness, like uh, the ability to place our attention into the present moment. And all of those those skills are enhanced. They're amplified when you have a, a mindfulness practice or a meditation practice. So that was really the premise of the book was I, I wrote it really because I wanted at the time to get these principles out into the basketball space, the mm-hmm. coaching, uh, coaching, really the coaching world and, and for players. And then my plan was to go and speak on this in schools. And over the course of a couple of years, I realized that, you know, and this, it, I, all my contacts were at the time in, in the Midwest and mainly in Wisconsin and nobody wanted anything to do with somebody coming in and speaking about mindfulness. There's just kind of a, a foreign language still. It has definitely changed over the past, you know, I wrote this book almost uh, almost five years ago. So mm-hmm. it's definitely fast tracked and changed. I mean, the conversations that are being had, especially on LinkedIn with some of the people that I've met from, oh, yeah. uh, from Milwaukee and from Wisconsin area, that's just, people are so much more open about it. I think because a there's research, there's tons of statistics around it. And, and honestly, like people are suffering and they're, when you get to that, that breaking point, you will try anything to feel better. And that's definitely, I mean, the yoga studio that I used to go to in Milwaukee before I, before I left uh, has grown exponentially. When I go back, the classes are, are packed. I mean, they're absolutely packed. And when I was going there, it wasn't like that. It was probably 30%, 40% of what it was. And I think that's just because, you know, we're, we're living in this, rapidly changing uncertain fast-paced world and people need a way to disconnect to learn how to work with their mind learn how to work with their chaos and be able to find that place within them that's always at peace it's always at rest that's never changing and using your breath as a way to continually come back to that place uh, whenever you get knocked out of the present moment or in a in a place of uh, high stress or chaos. Oh yeah. There's, you know, I think how much of this has been brought into the mainstream, uh, in recent years, you know, you can, you can attribute it in part to the, the Oprah effect or the Dr. Oz effect, yeah, or yeah, yeah. the Ellen effect, you know, but you end up having more and more, uh, practitioners who are part of a conversation. Uh, I, it was probably just maybe a year ago or six months ago, 
I ended up reading four books in a row. And, every, you know, uh, I read one by Sir John Hargrave. I read one by Jen Sincero, one by Deepak Chopra, one by Grace Smith. And, and in every single book, they're all saying the same thing. All of them are working on some kind of personal and professional development. Every one of them is saying, you know, at the core of this, you've got to have a, a daily meditation practice. Um, so it's it's interesting, you know, how uh, that theme has continued to come back and uh, and for me personally validate, you know, some of the things that are already um, part of my, uh, you know, individual focus. Um, right. But I wanted to ask you, you know, when we hear the term mindfulness, Beyond yeah. meditation, what are some of the things that that connotates for you or that you share with others? Well, I describe it in a few ways. Mindfulness to me is a, a, the ability or the skill to create the awareness of your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions in the present moment. Meditation is simply an exercise to train your brain to create that awareness. And then the second layer of that that a lot of people are are starting to implement is the emotional intelligence piece. And you can dive into that in, in a lot of different ways, but at, at the core, I think it's figuring out what is driving my thoughts, what is driving my feelings, what is driving my actions. And that's the, the emotional intelligence piece of the, uh, the, how they play off of each other from mindfulness and emotional intelligence. And that's the way I, I describe it to people. And then meditation is just, it's an exercise. It's just an exercise to train your brain, just like you would go to the gym and run on a treadmill or lift weights. And yep. you pick, you start a, you start a, a lifting program. You see physical evidence of change in your body. Like your, your, your muscles break down, they grow back stronger and, and they get bigger and you see physical evidence of change. And when you have a meditation practice, the same thing is happening in your brain. And so it's, I just try to explain it to people, take that, that woo-woo stuff out of it and just try to get them to understand that this is just simply training your brain. It's a workout for your brain. No, I really like that. And and you go back to you. I'm going to go back to you. You said you've worked with the like younger kids um, mm -hmm. in high school and, and middle school and stuff when you, when you first got started and yeah. you know, lately we all, we always hear this stuff. The millennials have been the punching bag, I guess for the yeah. past 20 years. And, and now <laughs> It's, it's starting to be Gen Z, right? They're starting to right. come up and, and they're starting to be, um, you know, the punching, <laughs> the punching bag a little bit. But so in working with, with the younger generations, what, what are you seeing? Are they, are they being more open to this mindfulness, um, self-awareness training that we've kind of seen in the past? I mean, I know some social media and, and having more access to it with the internet has made it, you know, more easily in, to get the information instead of reading books. Um, right. what, what did you just see from the time you started to like now? I love the millennial generation. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm at the very top of it, but I, I love that they're as a whole, I feel like they are more, they're just so much more aware of what's going on in the world. No offense, Brian. Uh, <laughs> I'm at the uh, very tip as well, too. But yes, yeah, so, hey, so, hey man, everything that the millennials can claim credit for, Gen X could do <laughs> before. <laughs> but they just, you know, they want purpose in their work. They they want to do meaningful things in the world. They're more self-aware. They want to make an impact, and so, uh, and I think they also 
demand transparency and and with that comes kind of figuring out why so many of these things in our world are not working and they want different solutions they want different answers and so where i'm going with that is they have been super open to mm-hmm. mindfulness it's it was kind of crazy because when i first set aside time in an event that I was running, a camp that I was running to teach this, I was kind of, I shouldn't say I was kind of hesitant. I was really hesitant to do it because I just had no idea how they were going to react. I think it actually was in a, I think it was actually in Moorhead, Minnesota is where the Mm -hmm. first one that I, or first time that I ever introduced it. And the response that I got from the kids was unbelievable. It was A, when are we going to do this again? B, can we do it longer? See, that was one of the coolest things I've ever done in my life. It was, it was shocking to me what the response was. And I think part of that is because they've grown up in a world that's always on. Mm-hmm. And they've never had, they, they've grown up in a world that's always on from a technological standpoint. But they've also grown up in a world where 99% of parents plan way too much stuff for their kids and have to have them on a schedule doing something every 15 minutes from the time they get out of bed to the time that they go to bed. And that can drain you. It absolutely, it can be so uh, overwhelming for a kid. There's no time for them to play. There's no time for them to be creative. There's no time for them to just daydream and wonder and let, let their mind wander and, and try new things and, and be in that, place of discovery. And so carving out the, the time for meditation and telling them that they essentially have the permission to do nothing for the next 10 minutes and just be there is something that they've never experienced before. Mm-hmm. And so they've been going back to quite, they've been super open to it. I mean, some of the kids, a kid that I, I've worked with since he's been in seventh grade. I don't do any basketball stuff really with him anymore, but more so on a, we have more so of a friendship slash mentorship relationship. He plays for the Toronto Raptors. Now he, you know, I got him to start practicing yoga back when he was a sophomore in college five, about five years ago. And it's had a huge impact. I mean, he, he tells me all the time. He's like, when I'm consistently doing this stuff, I, definitely feel the difference in my performance. And so they're just open to, to so much more stuff. And I love that about that generation. That's great. You know, I, uh, I'm an old rave generation kid. So, (laughs) and, uh, my, my father was an author of metaphysical literature and there, there came a point where he and I, uh, were having a discussion. I was, I was working on the introduction to one of his books and, uh, uh, in it, I, I told him, you know, a lot of, a lot of what you're describing about sort of this emergent, you know, new society, uh, is really, you know, part of a, a characteristic that in, uh, rave subculture, we used to call plur. I don't know if you've ever okay. heard that before, but plur, no. P-L-U-R, peace, love, unity, respect. Okay. That, that was like the axiom, uh, by which the subculture operated under, um, and yeah. we're all wired, you know, I mean, we were using social media before anyone referred to it as social media. Um, you know, we're all webheads and, you know, uh, coders. And, and so, uh, you know, part of what I, uh, shared with my father was a, a lot of these ideas that for him, 
kind of didn't exist until uh, the socio-sexual psychedelic revolution of the 1960s in the West, right? Yeah. That, that was kind of the turning point. Um, the whole point that I was trying to stress with him is this is actually now just foundational for people. So younger people are already operating from a position where, you know, some of these ideas that for a, a man in his 80s were, you know, still forward thinking. Um, it's actually kind of looking back, you know, it's sort of, it, it's almost like looking into the past, you know, right. for a lot of the, uh, the emergent generation. So part of what I feel like I'm hearing from you is, is reinforcement uh, of that idea that there, that there is uh, more of a, a native openness um, to the emerging generations. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I so agree. is there, um, <laughs> so I was just going to ask you a question that, that we always ask all of our guests. Is there any yeah. books or piece of media or HBR article or something or whatever that's had a big impact on you? So many, um, <laughs> so many, I think, you know, one thing that a lot of people want mentors all the time. They want somebody to, to mentor them, to learn from them. And with the access that we have today, you can find a mentor in anything mm -hmm. that, that you want. And so one way that I like to kind of do this through books. And I mean, I can't pinpoint one book that has had a, a massive <laughs> impact on me. Uh, one of them, I'll give you a couple. One is Leading an Inspired Life by a guy named Jim Rohn. Oh, yep. No, uh, Jim Rohn. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Um, he, you know, for those of you who don't know, he was Tony Robbins first mentor and a lot of Tony's philosophies come from, from Jim Rohn. His life philosophies come from Jim. Uh, he's got some incredible timeless books. I actually just reread that book a couple, uh, a couple months ago. That was awesome. Uh, uh, the untethered soul by Michael Singer and the other book that he wrote, uh, the surrender experiment, mm -hmm. both of those, uh, unbelievable books that have had a, had a big impact on my life and I'm trying to think of anything else that's really, those are, those two are really at the top of the list. There's, there's so many more that, that have had an impact course in miracles. Mm -hmm. has been, uh, been an amazing book, uh, workbook to, to study. That's been, that's had a, an impact as well. And that's a pretty light tome too. You can just kind of breeze through that, like on the subway. <laughs> I've been reading it for, I've had, I've had it for three years and I think I'm, or four, three or four years. And I'm, I mean, I'm close to being halfway done. I think I'm like page four. 460 something, you know, <laughs> reading, reading a page in there is like reading 50 pages of another book. It's pretty, pretty heavy stuff. But what I've learned is to try to just read it, not try to think about what in the world are they, was he talking about? And just kind of let that sink into your subconscious and just kind of go along the way and, and try to try to keep going with it. But that's, that's also had a, had an impact for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, that's the way I like to read. I, 
I don't read a ton of books quite as much anymore. I used to be a guy who could read like you know, 20 books a year, but now I pare it down to like, I might pick four books and then take notes yeah. and um, then go through my notes, then look on YouTube for somebody else's review of the book, just so I mm-hmm. can see somebody else's viewpoint on what that, what they read or what they heard. Um, yeah. And then I go back and decide what I want to implement and what I want to take out of it. Um, it's just a different approach I've taken and, and, I've done that with some long books where, where it took me like over a year to read it. <laughs> right. I wish I did more of that. I have way too many items <laughs> highlighted and underlined that have n- never had any action taken on them. <laughs> so <laughs> I wish I was more, more in your boat, but the other th- I mean, the other thing with that is I think, you know, we'll take action on the things that we need to at that mm-hmm. point in our life. And sure. But there, I, I definitely wish I leaned a little bit more your way, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I've only recently started doing it maybe the past couple of years. So I'm, I'm just as guilty as everybody else of, you know, picking up some leadership book saying, oh, this stuff's all great. And then um, going on to the next book and completely forgetting every, everything that I just read. Right. Um, you know, there's so much content out there, so much good stuff. There so, is, there really is. So if people are looking for you on the internet, um, want to check out your, your coaching, um, information, where, where can they find you? The two places I've been hanging out the most have been LinkedIn and Instagram, uh, both at who is Mike Lee. There was 9 million other Mike Lees. So <laughs> that was, that was the best that I could come up with. And also you can check out the website at mindshiftlabs.com. Would love to connect with anybody, answer any questions that you have, and, and help in any way that I possibly can. Yeah, we'll definitely be sure to uh, link all that in our show notes, uh, well as your link and the, and the link to your book as well, too. Amazing. Hey, Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. It's probably, you know, you weren't thinking you were going to be a guest on a podcast about leadership and technology probably a week ago. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Sorry, I had a great time. Yeah, no, we're, we're happy, oh, we happy to have you. And you know, leadership is just leadership in general. It doesn't doesn't matter where it is. That's that's my opinion. But <laughs> no, it's great. The, every every principle that we've discussed today, I think, is valuable to uh, you know a leader at any level in any field. So, really appreciate your insights. It's been a real pleasure getting to know you a little bit. Thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate you it. Bet. Thanks, Thanks for having me, guys. Mm-hmm.